Okay, this is part B or part two, starting with chapter two. Uh, so uh, next we're going to go through the seven prominent congregations of Turkey, that's Asia Minor, um, and uh, and hear what they're doing right and what they're doing wrong. And in all of this, the whole book of Revelation is a, is a temple text. All this is going to be intense with temple imagery. Um, and in fact, I, I think I think I'll be able to show that uh, that a temple text is um, is the overall organizing principle of uh, of this book. But let's launch into it. Chapter two: The angel of the church to the angel of the, of the church in Ephesus, right? These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Of course, that's Jesus. I know your works, your toil, and your endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. So this is the good, right? Now there's going to be the bad. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from where you are fallen, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So what is this remove your lampstand? This is, this is actually the imagery of Jacob 5. I'll prune off your branch and graft another in its place. This is tree of life imagery, pruning and grafting and things like this, right? Um, uh, each, of the, each of the seven branches uh, was one of the luchnia in, in Greek, the lampstands as it's called, right? Um, so, uh, verse 6. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now, who are the Nicolaitans? And why were they condemned? Uh, many of the early fathers believed that Nicholas, not St. Nicholas, he's a, he's a later dude, uh, but Nicholas, one of the seven deacons, those seven Greek-named deacons that were ordained by Peter, like Stephen, Stephen Stephanos, uh, they, this one, Nicholas, fell away into gross sexual sin and founded a separate sect, right? But that's not the earliest. I mean, that's the legend that grew up. But, but the earliest reports, uh, like from St. Ignatius, uh, who, who lived, uh, he was super earlier, like from 38 to 103. Ignatius says, if anyone affirms that unlawful unions, uh, you know, illicit sex, uh, are a good thing, if anyone affirms that and places the highest happiness and pleasure, as does the man who is falsely called a Nicolaitan, this person can neither be a lover of God nor a lover of Christ, but is a corrupter of his own flesh, and therefore void of the Holy Spirit and a stranger to Christ. So this is the, the very early uh, attestation of Nicholas, who says falsely called a Nicolite, and he didn't believe that they were really followers of Nicholas. Clement of Alexandria gives a good report of Nicholas and so forth like that. So, so it sounds like this was a false, uh, a false claim that they were followers uh, of Nicholas, right? Um, so now, verse 7. Let anyone who has an ear to, hear, ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches, to everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Um, okay, so this is, this is the first of these temple references, the seven churches. How do you eat the fruit of life? By returning to Eden, by returning to the presence of God. In the tabernacle and temple, the menorah originally stood in the Holy of Holies. Well, because it was Eden, right? Uh, if you're standing at the tree of life, eating the fruit of life, who are you going to talk to? God. That's his presence, right? Okay. And it's a symbolic presence of the mother, as we'll see, too. 
uh, verse 8. And the angel to the church in Smyrna, right? These are the words of the first and the last who was dead and came to life. Uh, and then, of course, it's going to be good and bad, right? I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews, but are not, but are strangers, uh, but, but are, sorry, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, um, this actually would, wouldn't fit particularly well in Paul, uh, because here, to, to actually be a Jew is good, right? And so people that say they're Jews are not, well, they probably are Jews, you know, like genetically, um, but then, but they've uh, gone over to the synagogue of Satan, right? Which, which suggests that at, in earlier times that the, the Christians would have thought of themselves in a way as a, as a restored branch of Judaism, a sect, just like Latter-day Saints. Uh, you know, there's differences, of course, but, but we consider ourselves, you know, a, a church among churches, right? The restored church, but, but in, in a sense, a branch of Christianity. Verse 10, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison. So that you may be tested for ten days, you will have affliction. Be faithful unto death. Well, hang on. Be faithful unto death. I thought I was just going to be in jail for ten days. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's an important, uh, you know, thing going forward. Revelation's mode of keeping time is just going to be symbolic, right? It's not going to be actual. Don't don't think that it's ten days. Uh, you know, ten days, and then yeah, you might die probably. <laughs> right. So. So finishing verse 10, and I will give you the crown of life. Um, okay, what's the crown of life? Um, it's interesting that in the Old Testament, the, the cap, that we, we call it the cap in the temple. Um, some translations call it a bonnet, but there's a crown. The high priest wears a crown on that, uh, on that bonnet or turban, as some, as some call it, that headgear. There's a crown. Verse 11, let anyone that has an ear to hear, uh, an ear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. And we know what the second death is, the separation from God, right? Verse 12, and to the angel in the church of the church at Pergamos write, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you are living, where Satan's throne is. Um, and, and most people think that this has uh, has to do with a very, very prominent temple of Jupiter there in Pergamon. Um, yet you are holding fast my name, and you did not deny your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan lives. So at the same place, the same pagan temple. So who was Antipas? Well, that's not certainly not Herod Antipas, right? <laughs> Some other Antipas. Um, Orthodox tradition says he was the bishop of Pergamos, right? And that the, the pagans were uh, reproaching him for leading the people away from their ancestral gods and demanded that he stop sacrificing, uh, stop so they could return to sacrificing to idols instead. Uh, and uh, but Saint Antipas, uh, Saint Antipas, answered that he was not about to serve the demons that fled from him, a mere mortal, right? He said that he worshipped the Lord Almighty, and he would continue to worship the Creator of all with his only begotten Son the Holy and the Holy Spirit. The pagan priests retorted that their gods existed from of old, whereas Christ was not from old, but was crucified under Pontius Pilate as a criminal. See, this is a very typical Greco-Roman answer. It's the antiquity of the thing that gives it its authority. And Jesus was a new guy, so he can't possibly be, you know, authoritative, right? 
thing has to be old. The saint replied that the pagan gods were the work of human hands, and that everything said about them was filled with iniquities and vice, which, of course, is true. I mean, the pagan gods gave them all kinds of excuses to do all sorts of rotten things. Uh, And Antipas steadfastly confessed his faith in the Son of God, incarnate of the Most Holy Virgin. The enraged pagan priests dragged the holy martyr Antipas to the temple of Artemis and threw him into a red-hot copper bowl, where usually they put the sacrifices to the idols. In the red-hot furnace, the martyr prayed loudly to God, imploring him to receive his soul and strengthen the faith of the Christians. He went to the Lord peacefully, as if he were going to sleep. At night, the Christians took the body of the holy martyr Antipas, which was untouched by the fire. Now, I, I always wondered at this. Uh, it was untouched, and yet he died. Hmm, interesting. Uh, but this is a common theme in, uh, in, in you know, Orthodox lore. <laughs> they buried him at Pergamum. The tomb of the martyr became a font of miracles and healings, various sicknesses. And uh, and I love this. The the Orthodox uh, say that, uh, that they pray to, to St. Antipas for relief from toothaches and diseases of the teeth. I just don't get the connection. But uh, that's the legend that grew up around uh, St. Antipas. If there was maybe some uh, kernel of truth, as there often is. That's mostly just for fun. Verse 14. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the people of Israel, so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and engage in sexual immorality. So you have, so you also have some who are holding who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent then. If not, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Oh, wait, wait they're going to get hidden manna? Where was the manna hidden? In the, in the Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies. So, again, it's the promise you're going to be in the Holy of Holies, in the abode of God, right? I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give a white or bright, leukos, it can be bright or white, I will give a white stone, and on the stone is written a new name that no one knows except the one who receives it. I hope this is sounding familiar. Let's talk about, about the white stone. It, uh, it deserves uh, some pondering since it's important in our temple worship. Well, let's start with this. And thou shalt take two onyx stones. This is the Lord to Moses. Onyx stones. Okay, these are white stones. And grave on them the names of the children of Israel. Uh, in my view, this is the, uh, the Urim and Thummim. Okay. There are two white onyx stones. And then there's also the 12 stones on the high priest's breastplate, right? Where each each name, uh, each had, uh, you know, a tribe name engraved on it. Um, okay, so why, why engrave a name on a stone? Well, okay, Egyptian names are frequently found engraved on rings and amulets. And often these are, these are marks of the, of the Pharaoh ascending to the throne, right? And these uh, these rings and amulets date from you know, at least the twelfth dynasty, probably a lot before that. So it could have been you know kind of a cultural accommodation, you know, uh, God speaking to us in the terms that we can understand, for God to have Moses write the names of uh, of the tribes of Israel on these stones and have them always before the high priest and therefore before God uh, as a as a memorial, right? Um, and it's because the Jews would understand it because they came out of Egypt. Except that the Jaredites have this too, right? <laughs> and they're not connected to Israel, right? If we know that from the Book of Mormon. And it turns out that this is actually, this whole idea is quite universal. Um, 
Now, it could be argued that the, the worship of Viracocha in Peru is connected to Israel, but let's just consider this from Dr. Van C. Evans, who uh, documented the ritual is still practiced in a temple to the, the bearded white god at, at Rakchi. So uh, he says this, after the washing and anointing, the rite of renaming, renombrar, as it's done in Spanish, is performed. In Quechua, the rite is referred to as munai suti, meaning beautiful name. While at the altar, the participant kneels and is given a new name by the same priest or priestesses, priestess, I should say, performing the earlier ordinances, the washing and anointing. As an example, the legal name of the shaman in my interview is Martina Mamani Aroskipa, but her new name is Siwar Koyolar, meaning messenger of the stars. Sieza wrote that the Incas in ancient times had their religions and superstitions and worshipped in some worshipped in some stones so large as eggs, and others larger of different colors. After the renaming. While kneeling at the usnu, the person is then given a stone. The purpose of the stone is to facilitate communication to the individual from the heavens. It is unknown how the stone communicates. The stone is usually egg-shaped, but is sometimes round or cylindrical. The stone is a gift and is taken home by the participant. And then it shows, a, shows figures in this, in this article, which you can, you can look up. I can show you if you want. Uh, of, of, this, uh, of this endowment stone found during the excavation of the Rakshi temple grounds. Okay. So in Revelation 2.17, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. See, uh, first, you know, Joseph Smith had a couple different stones that he used to translate the Book of Mormon. Why? Uh, well, because it was the tool that was provided to him by Mormon and Moroni, uh, and there was a long tradition in ancient American culture of using seer stones. Well, there was in the East Coast as well. But of course, eventually Joseph Smith didn't need it. Uh, Orson Pratt, who watched the New Testament revision, the JST, and wondered why uh, the use of seer stones or interpreters was not continued, he reported, while this thought passed through the speaker's mind, his own Orson Pratt's, Joseph, as if he read his thoughts, looked up and explained that the Lord gave him the Urim and Thummim when he was inexperienced in the spirit of, trans of inspiration. But now he needed, now he had advanced so far that he understood the operations of that spirit and did not need the assistance of that instrument. So then we have this from Doctrine and Covenants 130.10. Again, just put, put, putting all the symbolism together in a quick way, if I, if I can. Uh, so from 130. Then the white stone mentioned in Revelation 2.17 will become a Urim and Thummim to each individual who receives one, whereby things pertaining to a higher order of kingdoms will be made known. And a white stone is given to each of those who will come into the celestial kingdom, whereon a new name is written, which no man knoweth save he that receiveth it. The new name is the key word. Now this is fascinating, because... Whatever the white stone represents helps you to understand what is higher than you are. So Joseph getting the text of the Book of Mormon, he can't do it on the strength of his own spiritual ability, at least at the start, and, uh, and he needs some kind of help. Now, I don't pretend to understand that, uh, <laughs> but it interests me that, that you get this, something that whatever, whatever this really symbolizes, you get this when you come into the celestial kingdom. Well, hang on. I thought our work was done in the celestial kingdom, haven't we? Kind of 
arrived, you know? Well, I guess not. If we still need assistance in learning what is yet above us, the things pertaining to a higher kingdom. But but think about this in, in terms of the temple. The white stone is or is like the new name. Uh, and 130 says it's the key word. Um, this is uh, not that it's key, like really important. This is, this is the key point. Uh, no, that it is a key. Uh, if you possess it, you can... Uh, you know, which you can only you can only obtain it through your faithfulness, right? Through uh, fulfilling the requirements that let you be where you can obtain that that new name. But it is a key. It opens passages for you into a higher space. Think about that for a moment in terms of the new name in the temple. Get it? Okay. Verse eighteen. And to the angel of the church in Thuatira, Thuatira, sorry. These are the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. See the Ezekiel and, and Daniel visions again. 19. I know your works, your love, faith, patience, and endurance. I know that your latest works are greater than the first. That was the good. Here's the bad. Verse 20. But this I have, but I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, and is, and is teaching and beguiling my servants to engage in sexual immorality, and to eat food sacrificed to idols. Now, Remember that Jezebel, or Isabel, as it would have been said, well, that's the way it is in the Book of Mormon, and that's how it would have been pronounced, right? It didn't have a J sound like that. She was the corrupt Phoenician princess that was Ahab's wife that killed or tried to kill all the prophets of Yahweh. So to be called Jezebel, which is not her real name, this this gal in Thuatara, right? Um, but to be called that is to be classed with her as an opponent of God and God's prophets, right? It was the same in the Book of Mormon. Isabel, not her real name, right? Um, But it was her designation to quickly invoke all that that kind of person is and does uh, so that Alma could communicate, you know, all that in just one word, uh, Isabel, right? And the the effect of her ministry, like the effect of of, uh, Jezebel's uh, queenship. 21. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Beware, I am throwing her on a bed, and those who commit adultery with her I am throwing into great distress, unless they repent of her doings. And I will strike their children dead. Now, I see this as saying, I'm basically throwing her on her bed. Well, she was on a bed anyways, right? So what is God doing? I'm letting her be. I'm letting her go about her business. Right? And I'm waiting to see what what people will do. And then, you know, dealing with them as, as, uh, as needs be, right? And let her go about her business, and those that allow themselves to be beguiled and corrupted will have the consequences, right? Uh, continuing with verse 23. And all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you as your works deserve. But to the rest of you in Thoatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. To everyone who conquers, here's the promise again, to everyone who conquers and continues to do my works to the end, I will give authority over the nations. Is this a temple promise? Yes, it is. I will give authority over the nations to rule them with an iron scepter, as when clay pots are shattered, even as I also received authority from my father. So the promise of the temple is not just priesthood, but also to be a king or a queen. Uh, and, and continuing in verse 28, To the one who conquers, I will also give the morning star, 
Who's the morning star? That's Jesus. He's the, he's the brightest star of all the stars. He was the pre preeminent sun. We were all stars, as I think I've alluded to a bunch sufficiently. 29. Let anyone who has an, has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And we'll pause there and start up with part C.